I want you to think about how much you weighed in high school. If you have gained between eight and 13.9 pounds, simply the weight gain alone has elevated breast cancer risk by 25%. If you've gained between 14 and 29 pounds, you have a 60% increase. And if you've gained more than 25 pounds, you've nearly doubled your risk. But let's cue the good news. The highest rates of breast cancer happened in those who steadily increased weight over a lifetime. And the lowest rates were in anyone who just lost weight. Welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for raising your health IQ with us in more than 120 countries around the world and hundreds of cities in the U.S. So hello to the exam roomies listening today in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, Davenport, Iowa, and South Bend, Indiana. Go Irish! We appreciate you helping to make the world a healthier place. This is episode 86 of season 4, number 281 overall. It's also part 4, the final installment of our Let's Beat Breast Cancer series with Dr. Christy Funk this year. And today, the focus shifts to our weight. We've said it before, 3 out of every 4 adults in the US are overweight, and more than 4 out of 10 have obesity. And when it comes to breast cancer, that is a major problem. You just heard Dr. Funk talk about how much the risk of breast cancer can increase just by putting on weight after high school. And here today, you're also going to learn why. Why body fat is such a muse for cancer. And we're also going to get some tips from Dr. Funk on how you can flip those odds right on their head and reverse that danger. You'll learn how quickly your risk of breast cancer can drop as you begin to lose weight. And we're also going to be diving into some studies on exercise. Learning why just getting up from the desk and not sitting all day, every day, how much that improves your chances of avoiding breast cancer. And Dr. Funk is also going to answer questions about breast density and then which women need a step up from a regular mammogram and should get a breast MRI. And then we're going to wrap up the entire series by talking over her Beat It Breast Cancer Checklist, talking about all of the steps that you can take to make your risk of breast cancer as low as it possibly can go so that you can live a long and healthy life. So are you ready for part four? Here it is. Your weight and why it matters and how your risk for breast cancer can start to drop right now. Thanks for being here again. Oh, thanks for having me. Woo, happy to be here. This is my wheelhouse, Dr. Funk. When you we start talking about obesity and weight loss, I get all kinds of excited. And we know about so many benefits that come, you know, whether it's reversing diabetes, lowering the risk for heart disease, even reversing that, just getting your health in order. That's great. I get so excited about that. But really what we don't often get the opportunity to talk about is the effect that it has on breast cancer. So let's dive into that. Like how strong of a connection are we talking? 
It's pretty strong. And I got some facts to back that up. So um, I think the place to start is to ask the question, are you one of the three and four who is overweight or obese in America? And, you know, you may feel like you're in good company and nothing that we're saying here today about being overweight or obese has anything to do with fat shaming. That's always completely unkind, uncalled for and wrong. But there is also something wrong for me as a doctor, if an overweight or obese woman is sitting in front of me with a new cancer diagnosis that is hundred percent estrogen driven. And she looks at me wide eyed and earnestly wants to know how did this happen? I don't have a family history. Well, you got to think of boulders on the scale of breast cancer, tipping you toward or away from breast cancer. And the Let's Beat Breast Cancer campaign, which I invite all of you to take the challenge if you haven't, there's fun newsletters and tips. There's a grand prize giveaway and an entire digital goodie bag just for joining the challenge. But the challenge was created out of necessity. But the things that are in the challenge, there are four things are in fact the four boulders in my heavily researched opinion that push you toward or away from breast cancer. So a boulder, in other words, is so heavy, tips the scales so pervasively that it no longer matters about the pebbles. Your scale's already tipped. So pebbles um, it can be things like environmental toxicities. People worry about the BPA in plastic or the phthalates in cosmetics. People worry appropriately about hormone replacement therapy. They worry about the connection, mind-body connection and emotional stress and what that does. And that all matters, but boom, if you have a boulder, the pebbles just aren't going to tip those scales. Now, if you've got your life fully together and you don't have a boulder, now pebbles can matter and, and tip you toward illness. So what are those four boulders? A boulder is meat, dairy, and eggs, processed foods, saturated fat, simple sugars, refined cereals, all the foods that you want to avoid and lifting the boulder off is done by consuming a whole food plant-based diet. Another boulder, drinking alcohol. You lift it off by drinking a mocktail or water or green tea. Another boulder is a lack of exercise. You lift that off by starting to move more. And we'll talk about that today. And the final relevant boulder right now, boom, being overweight or obese. So does it matter though? Is the damage already done? If you lose weight, do you lose the risk? And what is the risk connection? Let's dive in with some slides, shall we? I love this. If this is anything like the previous episodes, I mean, we're, we're in for some quality, quality data here, man. I'm fired up. All right. I'm glad you are. So let's ask the question, who's too chubby? So if you're one of the 72.2% of American adults who is overweight or obese, you should know about it again, to incentivize you to realize mm, I'm 10 pounds, I'm 40 pounds, I'm too many pounds past my ideal body weight. You can Google body mass index calculator. We've got a handy one at pinklotus.com slash BMI. You're just going to put in your digits, boop, weight in pounds, height in inches, and out pops your body mass index. If it is, uh, between 18 and 24.9, you are in your ideal body weight range. Actually, you can be too thin and that has its own health consequences. So you might be underweight, but most people, as we just heard, 
three out of four are overweight or obese. And then one out of four is not underweight. Most people are in that group are normal weight. So, but being underweight is its own issue. It doesn't increase breast cancer though. Body mass index between 25 and 29.9, you are overweight. If you have a BMI over 30, you are obese. And if your BMI is over 40, you're morbidly obese. And we categorize morbidly obese because that group of people categorically has just an astronomic elevation in all sorts of illness that go way beyond breast cancer. Obesity is also 50% more common amongst our African-American sisters. And that has a whole discussion around it that goes well beyond um, the scope of anything we're going to talk about today. But one thing that is upsetting is that a lot of African-Americans are in parts of our United States that are food deserts and they don't have access to the fresh fruits and veggies, to the foods that are going to lower, that have like a lower glycemic index and that are going to be more, um, less calorically dense. There's a lot of um, processed foods and fast foods that are, is readily available and readily affordable to that community, which just is all part of the suppression that keeps um, our African-American sisters from reaching their maximal health. But with education and with programs in place, I do think we can dramatically reverse this. PCRM and I um, did a couple, two different um, online, you can YouTube it, seminars about black women and breast cancer. And you could learn a lot there if that's of interest to you. We had some really fun panel discussions. Okay, moving on. Breast can- Oh, I guess you could put the links to the YouTubes below. Um, breast cancer and obesity. So what is the issue here? So we know from our last um, exam room podcast that 80% of all breast cancers are fed and fueled by estrogens. And we know that high estrogen levels after menopause increase breast cancer risk. We learned and know that fat converts adrenal gland steroids into estrogen via an enzyme called aromatase. So this all begets the question, do obese women have increased estrogen levels that increase their risk of breast cancer? Hmm. Well, to answer that, let me tell you a study comparing weight gain in life to incidence of breast cancer. Here we have a relative risk person of 1.0. I want you to think about how much you weighed in high school and how much you weigh now and do some easy subtraction and get that difference. So how many pounds have you gained or not since high school? If, oh, if you've gained or lost eight pounds, you are a null person. There's no change in your breast cancer risk. So super happy for you and your skinny jeans. I hope you have a lot of friends. I'm kidding. (laughs) I'm glad that you maintained that ideal body weight. If you, however, have gained between eight and 13.9 pounds, that simply the weight gain alone has elevated breast cancer risk by 25% above had you just stayed in the ideal weight range. If you've gained between 14 and 29 pounds, you have a 60% increase in breast cancer. And if you've gained more than 25 pounds, you've nearly doubled your risk of breast cancer. So in point of fact, there's no question and no controversy that obese women have more breast cancer. They have more breast cancer recurrence. They have more breast cancer related death than non-obese women. We know that obese women are more likely to have larger tumor sizes 
and more likely to have positive nodes and a higher number of positive nodes. But let's cue the good news. A prospective study with 33,660 women followed these women over for 15 years and almost 2000 breast cancers developed. And what they found is that the highest rates of breast cancer happened in those who steadily increased weight over a lifetime. And the lowest rates were in anyone who just lost weight over a lifetime. So the more women lost and the younger in life, they lost it, particularly if it were premenopausal loss, the less breast cancer they got, but all the losers won. So I want you to be a loser. One of the ways to lose uh, weight is to be careful of the company you keep. A very interesting study showed that if a close friend is, becomes obese, you are 57% more likely to become obese yourself. What if your spouse becomes obese, 37% more likely. Isn't that interesting? Your friends matter more than your spouse. Are you kidding me right now? Are you kidding? That is amazing. Oh yeah. So, you know, pick, pick like-minded friends that are interested in maximizing health and in maintaining an ideal body weight. I spend a lot of time on weight in my summit that's coming up at live at Terranea, October 16, 17. And also it's available right now online, virtually. And there are coupon codes that I've written here, LBBC standing for Let's Be Breast Cancer 20 for 20% off the virtual or LBBC 10, 10% off the live. And portions of all proceeds go to PCRM as a donation. And I would love to see you there. And particularly in the weight loss section, I've got 21 tips on how to lose weight, including my metabolism mix, which is a blend that you make at home. I'm not selling it, selling it. Um, a blend of six different spices that have been scientifically proven to either decrease appetite or rev up metabolism. And two tablespoons of that a day will help melt your fat away. You know what else can uh, help melt fat away? Moving. So 25% of breast cancer cases worldwide are due to the deadly combination of obesity and a sedentary lifestyle. What is exercise doing? Based on the evidence, exercise reduces breast cancer by decreasing estrogen levels. Remember cancer fuel for 80% of them. And it can help you lose weight via enhanced fat metabolism. It definitely helps you maintain lost weight. And it decreases inflammatory markers, all of the letter factory, the letter factory of like VEG1, like IGF1, which is the big daddy, interleukins, IL1 and 6, prostaglandins, all of these are lessened by regular exercise. And these inflammatory markers when present are really damaging your immune system's ability, handicapping its ability to seek out and destroy cancer cells. So exercise by way of that pathway also strengthens your immune system. Okay, doc, how much exercise is enough? This is a cool study because it it's pretty doable for anyone. This perspective study looked at over 17,000 women, postmenopausal women, and found that those who simply briskly walked for 11 minutes a day slashed their breast cancer risk by 18%. If you put a little pep in your step and exercise three to four hours a week at moderate to vigorous levels, you have a 30 to 40% lower incidence of breast cancer over sedentary women. 
And finally, women who exercise for more than four hours a week at moderate to vigorous levels have a 57% lower incidence of breast cancer than sedentary women. Um, uh, so what I encourage women to do if they're largely sedentary now, and let's face it, COVID has really exacerbated all of the risk factors for breast cancer, alcohol consumption, gaining weight, reaching quickly for that fast, uh, caloric, uh, fatty is what I'm going to say, comfort food and, um, increasing stress. There's just so much going on, uh, in the aftermath of COVID and we're still not quite out of it, but one of the things is uh, people got used to not exercising, whether it was an excuse or the reality of like, I oh, can't go outside, can't get to a park, can't like in the beginning of the pandemic, that that sedentary mode just sort of set in for a lot of people. And if that's you start low and go slow. You just saw 11 minutes of briskly walking a day that has a, a benefit. You just add a few minutes day after day until you're finally kind of walking with some pep and vigor for a solid 40 minutes a day and you're golden. If you really want to level up after that, you could add swimming, biking, running, hiking, or any other activity that you enjoyed doing uh, to the daily regimen and you will be well served for having done so. Actually, I want to take a, a little stop here in the, in the slides. Um, and I want to ask you to, uh, do something for me, Chuck. Yeah. Ready? Yeah. I want you to sit up straight, open your eyes wide, fix your gaze ahead of you and slightly upward, take a deep breath. And on the exhale, put on the biggest smile you can paste, just <laughs> smile across your face and hold it. Okay. Hold it. Hold Don't it. Don't let your posture slouch. Don't <laughs> let your grin fade. And now. Try to feel sad. Hold the smile. <laughs> Think of, you know, dying puppies, slaughtered cows, starving children. You can't do it, can you? You can't feel sad. <laughs> you can't oh, feel sad. You can no, not, no. Um, because what you're actually physically doing right now releases happy neurotransmitters like serotonin and dopamine, and they override the sadness signal. And so we, we know this about sort of the the mind body connection, like you're enraged and your heart rate speeds up when you're nervous, you get butterflies in your stomach. The mind body connection is something that people can see pretty clearly. I mean, you can ask any man who's had an erection um, or like, you know, if you're, you're watching a movie and it's scary and you're like, palms are sweaty and your heart's racing. You're like, why am I so scared? I'm just sitting here in a theater with some popcorn, like what's going on. But what you just did with the big smile made your physical state manipulate your emotional state. And I think that's so fascinating that all emotions result from how we move our bodies. So in my opinion, even though it doesn't directly connect to decreasing breast cancer, one of the main drivers, at least in my life for exercise is just how it makes me feel. I'm just happier when I move more. And I think that one of the things that will keep women coming back and back to exercise once they get in the groove, so to speak. And it's not, it's, it's literally the endorphin high, but it's also just knowing that you've done something so positive. Like it just, it, you literally move yourself when you exercise into a state of appreciation and joy. So. I can dig it. Lace yeah. up them sneakers. Right. Get, I, like get at it. It. I like it. I like it too. Get at it. Um, all right. So let's go back here and moving on. Oh, we got, uh, 
let me get Wait, back to my notes. I think, you know, that, that whole exercise goes back to something that I was taught as a kid. It's like, if you're feeling down smile, even if you don't feel like it force that smile and you'll just naturally start to feel better. So you just explain the whole science behind that theory. Exactly. Whenever I wake up on the wrong side of the bed, which isn't very often I have to say, but when I do, or my kids, one of them in particular, I won't name you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, when you're grumpy, I'm just like, smile, just do it for me. Just do this for a minute straight without stopping. And I have to say it works. It really does because you've changed your biochemistry and it, it isn't a panacea. It's not going to take away something like truly tragic or stressful or sad that's going on right now, but it does give you this, like that moment, that, that moment of like a reset in your mind. And now you can approach whatever is stressing you out, maybe with a little less angst um, and exercise just as an automatic reset. Try to do it every single day. There you go. All right. So back to the slideshow. What I want to move transition now into um, is a pebble. It's a very uh, common pebble that people throw on that scale. And it's called hormone replacement therapy. So is it safe to take? We've, we've vilified estrogen. And so now what hormone replacement therapy is doing, it's replacing the estrogen that your ovary now has stopped putting out into your system. So is that safe or dangerous, neutral? In July, 2002, a landmark study hit the press and the brakes because after 5.2 years, this study was halted because health risks is health risks exceeded benefits. The Women's Health Initiative, what they did was they took 16,000 postmenopausal women with a uterus. This is important because when you have a uterus, estrogen unopposed builds up, is is pro-estrogenic in your uterus, which is going to build up a uterine cancer risk. So you have to take progesterone to shed that lining. Okay. Because there's a difference with maybe the progesterone is part of the problem. So anyway, PremPro combines estrogen and progesterone versus placebo. So all these postmenopausal women are either taking PremPro or a sugar pill. And after 5.2 years, they called it quits because there were 26% more breast cancers in the hormone replacement group, along with more heart attacks, strokes, blood clots, and dementia. However, there were fewer colon cancers and hip fractures. So when this study ended in 2005, consent was obtained again from another 13,000 women to follow the breast cancer incidents. And they reported out an update in 2010, which said basically if, so you get the baseline amount of breast cancer happening in the placebo group, you subtract that out and you've got what you can attribute to the HRT use, right? And that amounts to seven out of every thousand women on hormone replacement will get a breast cancer she would not have otherwise had. And then the math on that is one out of every 143 women on HRT. So when I give that stat to an individual woman, who's like hot flashing her way to a divorce and totally miserable, she's like, one to 143, I'll take that risk. Give me the pills. Right. And I want to say that, that, uh, that makes a lot of sense until you realize that there are over 6 million women in the U S right now on HRT. And so when you do the math on 143, literally getting a breast cancer because of that, you're looking at something like 36,000 cancers that don't have to happen. And, and that's a lot. So, um, 
let me let me give you another update. So hot off, hotter off, it's 2019, the hormone press is a study, a 2019 UK study. It's not as rosy as one in 143. If you have a look, estrogen plus progesterone users, by the way, is a meta-analysis over 100,000 women. It's using all types of hormone replacement. So we get to pull out the progesterones a little bit here. So all types of hormone for five years showed that the combination at a five-year mark made one out of every 50 users get a breast cancer. And if you had estrogen with intermittent progesterone use, it was one in 70. And then if you just were taking estrogen alone, it was one in 200. So it does seem that the either synergistic effect of the progesterones plus the estrogen, or really the, the progesterone itself is a big driver in creating these breast cancers. But the point I made about six plus million women in the U S being on combination hormone leading to like 36,000 cancers is if you trust these stats, more like 124,000 avoidable invasive breast cancers. So when women ask me what they should do, it always comes down to an individualized discussion based on their personal risks for getting breast cancer, heart attacks, dementia, strokes, uh, for colon cancer and fractures, their level of osteoporosis. And also it's, really dependent on why you want to take it. Are you chasing the fountain of youth? You just want like plumper skin and thicker hair, or are you really worried about something you're trying to treat? Like what's happening? Because usually uh, we can at least first try some non-estrogenic options uh, to mitigate the risk that we know comes along with daily estrogen use. So we've got complementary medicine, acupuncture, Chinese herbs, both of which can be really helpful with hot flashes herbal remedies, uh, menopause miracle is something that pink Lotus elements owns. It's our company that has all of these products that help women through a tough time, including menopause being one of the toughest, um, black cohosh, uh, Dong Kwai, evening primrose oil, ginseng, melatonin, vitamin E, all of these have in studies, some, um, protective effects and remedies for mostly, mostly hot flashes, not menopause miracle though, that works on all 12 major symptoms of menopause, according to the Kupferman index. So hot flashes, night sweats, vaginal dryness, mood swings, um, mental dullness, uh, itchy skin, thin skin. It, it's pretty masterful, decreased libido. Other now, if you're really miserable, prescription meds can, um, really help. These are all hot flash medications or gotamine, clonidine, gabapentin. My patients who are on tamoxifen or Rimidex, these anti-estrogen drugs treating breast cancer, oftentimes are prescribed these like right along with it. Like you're going to get hot flashes. Here's your gotamine. Um, I think that we can try some other things in, before we go to prescription meds. There's another list of prescription meds you might recognize as antidepressants, venlafaxine, paroxetine, floxetine body movement works really well. And I think people don't want to admit it because it takes effort on your part, but it's the same story that we just finished with exercise. You just kind of get into it and you start to really enjoy it and crave doing it. And it can have really amazing effects on hot flashes and other menopause symptoms. PCRM just published a study looking at how soy consumption even with or without exercise can dramatically reduce hot flashes and other menopause symptoms. 
Um, again, we've got this herbal that has three randomized controlled trials against placebo. It shows that over 90% of women have over 90% of their symptoms either completely fixed or now tolerable. And it's just a three Asian herb blend that's completely safe, has no side effects, increases bone density. So that's something you can definitely consider. And you can take alongside things like tamoxifen or Arimidex. I wanted also, I get a lot of questions about what's the right screening for me. A lot of this comes down to two things, your personal, um, your risk for getting breast cancer. If you've had a personal history of a biopsy that puts you at higher risk, if your family history is really strong, if you have a genetic mutation, that's going to be a higher risk category. And the other issue is your breast density for two reasons. So let's have a look at this picture. You've got dense tissue being the lobules and ducts of the breast, making the things on the mammogram look like a white splotchy snowstorm. So density refers to the elements inside your underneath that breast skin of yours. Those are the actual elements that will make breast cancer. In other words, fat, stroma, blood vessels, those things don't make breast cancer. And those things look dark on a mammogram. So the whiter your mammogram, the denser your breast, the more of the tissue you actually possess that can make a cancer one day. Enter the big problem. Cancer on a mammogram is always white. So the denser your breasts, you have a higher risk for getting breast cancer now with more of those breast elements. And we're looking for a snowball in a snowstorm. A white cancer in a white background makes us miss cancer up to 50% of the time in the densest of breasts, which is a density level four. On the opposite end of the spectrum, by definition, less than 25% of what we're looking at is a white and splotchy and dense. So that's a fatty breast. Then you've got your in-between groups. So only 10% of women have level one fatty breasts. And thankfully only 10% of women have a level four dense breast, extremely dense breast. These words along the bottom are universally used in your mammogram report. It's doctor code. I'm revealing the doctor code. These one of these four terms will always be on your MAMO report to determine your breast density. That is the only way you know your breast density. People might, they're like, oh no, I'm really dense because they feel to themselves like their breast is firm and lumpy. You might be dense, but it's actually a mammographic call. So you don't know until you have a mammogram. So we've got 80% of all women's evenly split 40-40 in level two, which is not dense. They have scattered fibroglandular densities seen on their report. And 40% of women have level three, which is dense, heterogeneously dense. So if you can do all that math, 50% of women are dense and 50% of women aren't. In the 50% that are dense, I strongly recommend that you make sure you're getting a 3D mammogram, otherwise known as tomosynthesis. If you think of your breast as a loaf of bread, which who doesn't, and you squash it between two plates and take a picture, and then you tell me, hey, Dr. Funk, pick out all the raisins. I'll see some raisins, but what if this is what 3D Tomo does? You took that from your perspective, it's still just your breast between two plates and a squash in two pictures. But from my perspective, now I'm getting like 70 or more slices of raisin bread pulled up into the picture. And now, voila, I can see all of these raisins. So, in point of fact, 3D Tomo does find about 17% more breast cancers. And with 35% fewer callbacks for false positives, like, oh, I think I see something, but it might be nothing. But now you got to come back and get stressed out and get more radiation and imaging and maybe a needle. 
So it's definitely superior for all the dense breasts out there. If you don't have access to 3D or if your insurance isn't covering it and you can't afford the couple hundred bucks it is to upgrade to a 3D, but you have dense breasts, hopefully your insurance will pay for ultrasound because a 2D mammogram plus ultrasound is equal to, or in some studies superior to a 3D mammogram alone. So you can do the normal 2D mammo plus a screening ultrasound. On ultrasound, the breast tissue is white, the cancers are black. So now they pop out a little better. I like in my higher risk people because of family history or personal biopsy, I like for them to get 3D mammo and screening ultrasound to mitigate the missed, the false negative rate that happens with either imaging study alone. And I like for them to space those studies out by six months. So they're never going a full year without some good breast imaging happening. That's for people who have a higher risk of breast cancer for any reason. If you're just normal risk, then you can get your 3D mammo once a year and be fine. Or you can do a combination 2D mammo with ultrasound once a year, same day, and then be fine for the year. Another great tool for those who are at higher risk for breast cancer is breast MRI. It's great. And then not so great because there are false positives with this that then send you down a big rabbit hole and MRI guided biopsies is MRI is the only thing seeing an abnormality. And that's what you've got to use to direct a needle into your breast. It's pretty much torture. Like I've never had any patient come out of an MRI guided biopsy and be like, Oh, that was peaceful. That was cool. I can do that any day of the week. Like everybody hates it. So I don't like the false positive rates on MRI, but it is a, our most useful imaging tool, our most accurate one when it comes to identifying breast cancer. So particularly if you have a gene mutation, I do like to get breast MRIs depending on the mutation. Sometimes I space it out to be every other year, every three years, really high risk every year. The reason for the spacing is that there is a gadolinium injection, which was found in a cadaver study. I think it was 2014 to pool in people's brains. It wasn't like the study though was about dementia, but they did happen to notice that people with the most frequent MRI use during their living lifetime had gadolinium in their brain tissue. And I'm just pretty sure it's not an antioxidant. We don't know what it's doing there, but I like to limit the gado gadolinium exposure in those women. Finally, the, even the official like American Cancer Society guidelines is for women to not bother doing self-breast exams. But really, ultimately, the reason why is that it can create false alarms, again, throwing you into imaging that's unnecessary. And it, it's um, not proven to improve detection. But that's because women don't know what they're doing when they self-examine. So I hear all sorts of things like it wakes me out to do my own breast exam. I feel all these lumpy and bumpy, confusing things and I get scared. Um, do I really have to do it? Well, you don't have to do anything you don't want to do, but I did create a five minute video that you can watch. Uh, it's at easybreastexam.com. And I just detail out how to do a perfect breast exam. And believe it or not, I advocate that as soon as girls start having periods, they start doing self breast exams. That's not because I think a 12 or 14 year old is going to have breast cancer, but it is because I want number one for her to not get wigged out by feeling her own breasts, which a lot of adults, when they first are like, okay, I'll try to do a self breast exam. They're just like, Oh, I can't do it. Um, 
But if you started when you were young, you're like, yeah, this is the lay of the land. Like I get my breast drain. It's always lumpier over there or whatever. So the video um, is really instructional. You'll definitely find out a tip or two that you had no idea you should be doing when you do self-breast exam. Um, and finally, my summary. So my beat it breast cancer checklist is to consume a whole food plant-based diet that prioritizes fruits and vegetables, 100% whole grains and legumes like beans, pen peas and lentils, whole food, soy, ground flaxseed. I say whole food soy because um, soy protein isolate is, uh, does not have any known studies to me that show that it can decrease uh, breast cancer risk the way all the whole food soy, even minimally processed like soy milk and tofu um, do. Ground flaxseed, I want you to eliminate all meat, poultry, fish, dairy, and eggs, and minimize saturated fat, simple sugars, processed foods, and refined cereals. Get to an ideal body weight and stay there forever, keeping your BMI under 25. Exercise. I didn't talk about how much is enough. Five hours of moderate exercise. Like if you can chit chat with your girlfriend while you're speed walking, five hours a week is maximal. Uh, for risk reduction, or if you're super sweaty and can hardly carry on any conversation at all, two and a half hours a week, that's 22 minutes a day. You can do that next minimize or eliminate alcohol seven or fewer drinks a week, favor four to ounces of red wine. I didn't talk about this, but just don't smoke. It's not good for you. I didn't talk about this either. Stress management techniques, 20 minute daily minimum. I want you to pray, meditate, do Tai Chi, yoga, guided imagery, focused breathing. We go through this in detail in my summit. I have a whole section on, on stress management and the incredible benefits of meditation. Everything I talk about in the summit, by the way, I tie in with science and facts and studies so that, you know, it's not my opinion. Like I feel like managing your stress is good for you. No, I'm going to show you. It decreases C-reactive protein and interleukins. And in studies with people, their blood pressure goes down, their insulin requirements go like it's, it's amazing and doesn't take a lot of time each day. And finally, to maximize joy and minimize illness in your life, get socially connected with others, a 30 minute daily minimum. Okay. In COVID times, this no computers or phones or screens is a little more challenging, but always try to be with others in person, date night, coffee with a friend, church group, tennis team, uplifting online communities, a bridge club. You get the idea. We're meant to live in community. I want you to get, um, do a monthly self-breast exam. Now you've got the video to show you how to do it. An annual clinical breast exam. That means with a doctor. Oh, when should I start mammograms and when should I stop? All the societies uh, have their ideas of what is best. It's all based on a cost benefit analysis with cost being more than money, uh, anxiety, time off work, unnecessary biopsies, et cetera. And you'd be surprised if you ask just women, like how many false positive mammograms would you tolerate in order to save one life? Most women are like 10,000, like a ton. Like, I don't care to save one life. Sure. But when you really are a statistician and you're charged with that question, the answer actually has an answer. And so it depends on what the answer is that determines what society says when to start. In other words, you've probably heard start at age 40, start at age 50, uh, start at age 45 and skip every other year, stop at 74. These are all real recommendations. Um, and some of those largely say it takes 1900 mammograms to save one life. Um, 
but others say well, that's too many. It takes 1300 mammograms to save one life. So if you're a 1300 person, you're going to tell everybody to start mammograms at age 50. If you think it's okay to have 1900 mammograms to save one life, you're going to start at age 40. Here's what I say. I side with the American College of Radiology and the American Society of Breast Surgeons. And I'm telling you, if you're at normal risk for breast cancer to begin at age 40, don't stop and don't skip years until you plan to die in the next 10 years, which is admittedly hard to plan for, but some people do know if they're true, uh, they have, they don't have the, the longevity uh, anymore and they know they're not going to be alive in the next 10 years because any cancer you diagnose at that time is not going to take you down. So best not to fret over it and do the screening. All right. So that's the mammogram spiel. Uh, plus we talked about it, additional imaging such as ultrasound or MRI when indicated and additional clinical exams, like my high risk BRCA carriers, they see me twice a year. And finally, if you're like me, you always go for the extra credit. So give back, smile, laugh, and love. I just want to remind everybody that my summit is coming up October 16, 17 at the gorgeous oceanfront Terranea. That is a picture of the real place where we are meeting. And I'd love to see you there. You can come with a 10% discount if you'd like using the code LBBC for Let's Beat Breast Cancer 10. Or if you can't make it, but really, really want to hear me talk for like 12 hours straight, um, you can watch the online version at 20% off LBBC 20. Both those codes will also give PCRM a chunky donation. So use the codes. If you want to read about the things I'm saying, I do have a book. It's called Breast the Owner's Manual. I'd love to see you all join my entirely free online community where women are empowered. They connect with others. They get education through the cancer kicking site. I've got a kitchen in there with recipes. One of my favorite, favorite things about power up is breast buddies. This is a matching program whereby those who have already been there, done that with their breast cancers are matched with someone newly diagnosed age for age, stage for stage treatment for treatment solely for the purposes of friendship and psychosocial support. Um, LACE, the life after cancer epidemiology study followed uh, just under 2000 women for 10.8 years and with, with early stage breast cancer. And what they found was that those who reported out low levels of psychosocial support and a lack of any, and, or a lack of any religious affiliation were 57% more likely to be dead at the end of that decade. So I literally created breast buddies because not everybody has a BFF. Not everybody likes their family, um, but everybody can have a breast buddy. It's totally free. You just go in there. You're like, I'm 47 mastectomy chemo and broop, like match.com for breasts, op pups, all the women that match you age for age, stage for stage and treatment for treatment. You can look and be like, oh, wait, she's got a 12 year old boy. I want to talk to her because I want to talk about that. So anyway, join power up. I love it. I'll see you there. And then finally, we've got our online store, Pink Lotus Elements, filled with amazing products, many, veg vet many vetted by randomized controlled trials, and all of them vegan. And um, you'll find a lot of products to help deal with side effects of treatments. Finally, if you haven't taken the challenge, today is the day. Let's be breastcancer.org. We've got a four week challenge to help you along the way. We provide newsletters and fun giveaways, an entire digital goodie bag. The four week challenge means that you promise to do your bestest to follow a whole food plant based diet, exercise more, 
eliminate or limit alcohol and strive to achieve an ideal body weight. By doing those four things, you will maximally write your scale so that you are in balance and maximally reduce your chances of ever facing a breast cancer diagnosis or recurrence. And that is that. A lot of information there, a lot of valuable, great information there. And as we wrap up here for the month, we put a bow on Let's Beat Breast Cancer 2021. A couple of questions for you. Obviously, the focus um, has been on women throughout the month, but specific to what it was we were talking about at the beginning of this segment, um, obesity. I'm wondering if there have been any studies on the correlation of obesity in men and breast cancer risk. Right. And there, there have been, and it does, there is a correlation between obese men having a higher risk of breast cancer than non-obese men. So there's a short list of things that increase breast cancer in men. Uh, but obesity is among them as is Klinefelter syndrome. If anyone's heard of that and having a gene mutation. So basically apply the, the same principles that you were talking about here. A lot of that goes the, you know, the same length here, uh, with us fellas in the world. And my last question to you is this is also something that we talked about in our first episode of the month. And it was one of the coolest things that I think you have ever said. If somebody takes all of these nutrition tips we've been talking about, they add exercise to their life. They get up, they get out of the house, they move around, they're eating well. How much lower could their risk be when you combine all of those benefits together? Oh, 80 to 90% drop in breast cancer risk. Oh, love that. It's the most powerful thing you can do is what you do every single day with deliberation and awareness. What is on the end of your fork? What is top of mind? What are you physically doing? What are you audibly saying? All of these things create a cellular environment that is either stoking cancer or choking cancer feeding it or starving it. So these choices are so inextricably tied to health and illness, and they're all a choice. And that's what I love. That's what's so empowering. 80 to 90%. And that power is indeed in the palm of your hand. Dr. Christy Funk, thank you so very much for everything, all the hard work that you're doing, certainly being part of our Let's Beat Breast Cancer campaign once again this year. And you are just somebody to admire. So thank you so very much for being here today. Thank you, Chuck. And there you have it. Our Let's Beat Breast Cancer series for this year is in the books. Dr. Funk has given us so many great tips and so much fascinating science, so many ways that women, and yeah, even us guys, can join together to beat breast cancer. There is that old saying that knowledge is power, and cliche as it is, it is also so very true when it comes to your health. It's about learning the right foods that fuel your body in the healthiest ways. It's about knowing just how much these little changes can add up to make a big difference. It's also about realizing that so many of these cases can be avoided. And it's about knowing that those who have already been through the breast cancer struggle can take what Dr. Funk has been talking about 
and apply it to their life and they can see their risk of recurrence plummet. It's about sleeping more soundly, knowing that you are doing everything you can to beat breast cancer. And as we wrap up this series, I wanted to share the story of a very special listener with you. Her name is Nadine. And she wrote me right after the first episode of our Let's Beat Breast Cancer series was released. She said that she wanted to give hope to those who have been diagnosed and are currently going through treatment. And she asked if I would share her story. Here it is. The year was 2018, and Nadine had been busy planning her wedding and finally got to walk down the aisle on one magical day to say I do to the man she loved more than any other. She was ready to spend a long, healthy life with him. But just weeks after their wedding, she found a lump on her left breast. Days later, doctors would tell her that she had triple negative breast cancer. And Nadine was just 28 years old at the time. She and her husband would spend countless hours consulting with doctors and weighing all of the options, asking for a second, a third, and a fourth opinion. And when they asked one doctor whether her form of cancer was even curable, she was told, quote, we will never know. And it was only then that she began to feel the full gravity of her diagnosis. But that conversation also triggered an incredible will to live. And not only did she fight back physically through treatments, she also began to study up on why someone as young as she was, just 28 years old, could get breast cancer. And then one day while walking through a bookstore, she spotted a book. It was called How Not to Die by Dr. Michael Greger. And she says what she read about breast cancer was a true revelation. This is what she writes about her epiphany. You see, as a millennial, I felt that we were raised on convenience, on formula and fast food, instant food. I learned from the book that early monarchy was already a sign that something was wrong with nutrition. But I loved the American standard diet. I lived in the Philippines, but American food could easily be accessed with various fast food chains that were there, and of course, American restaurants. I also loved junk food, and I would even call myself a junk food connoisseur. So six months before my wedding, I really wanted to slim down. So I started to eat a keto diet. Bulletproof coffee every single day. And when I would go out for breakfast, I would always just eat eggs and bacon. And so that is a window into her diet leading up to her diagnosis. And it's really not much different from what the majority of people here in the U.S. are eating. But now let's flash forward until after the diagnosis. She says that she had been waiting until after completing her chemo to begin her plant-based journey. And shortly after she finished the chemo, she underwent a mastectomy. And the doctors then would give her great news 
that there were no more traces of cancer and even the lymph nodes and the PET scans were all clear. But still, she said, she would go through radiation to finish. But now she was eating a plant-based diet. And this is when she truly began to learn how powerful food choices can be. Here again are her words. When I started, I was also with my chemo classmates. And then it hit me. Some were even younger than I was. But the difference was that I still had my lashes, my hair, and my skin wasn't dull or dry, and I had a ton of energy. I lived just across from the hospital, so I would walk to my radiation appointments every day. And I had to go up and down the stairs, and I did it with ease. While sadly, some of my classmates were brought in in a wheelchair. I tried my best to share this newfound way of aiding our treatment, but you get the same excuses. And others wouldn't even believe it and would tell me that their grandparents lived to be 100 without ever being vegetarian or vegan. It's so hard though to see them suffer like that when you know that something can be done. But flash forward to present day, flash forward to now, the scans, with God's grace, are still clear. And I have been vegan since the middle of 2018. Just because I wanted to protect myself from breast cancer, I was also able to lower my cholesterol and blood pressure. And I've also lost 23 pounds and am back to my high school waistline. It's such an amazing thing what this diet has done for my body and my mind. When fear of the future comes in, I can tell myself I did all the treatment and now I am also doing everything I can to prevent it from coming back. It gives me a sense of calm knowing that yes, you have control over your disease. You are not at the mercy of cancer. You have the power to overcome it, and to fight. I am so happy to hear that she's doing so well. And I do hope that her story, sharing it here today, gives hope to those who are currently in the fight. So Nadine, thank you so very much for being an inspiration. And if you want to be like Nadine and start to take charge of your health, there are links to everything that we have discussed on the show today, right now in the episode notes. We have links to Dr. Funk's book, Breast the Owner's Manual. We have links to the summit and to take the Let's Beat Breast Cancer Challenge. And when you take that challenge, which is absolutely free at letsbeatbreastcancer.org, you will also receive a complimentary digital goodie bag that is filled with more cancer-fighting tools that can turn you into a lean, mean, healthy cancer-fighting machine. And a link to that also is in the episode notes. And for today, that is going to wrap things up. I want to say thank you one more time to Dr. Christy Funk for not just joining us here today, but throughout the month of October to talk about our Let's Beat Breast Cancer campaign. Remember, 
she said as many as 90% of breast cancer cases could be prevented. What a number that is. And for everyone here at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, as always, keep it plant-based and let's beat breast cancer. <laughs>